Hi everyone, I'm Pamelia Chia and you are listening to the Singapore Noodles Podcast, your go-to destination to learn about Singaporean food culture. Today I have on the show Chrisada Virabak, who is the founder of All Things Peranakan on Instagram. Even though he's just 19 this year, Chrisada has been really passionate about sharing Peranakan food culture with others on social media. I find him a really inspiring young person and so I invited him on the podcast to share about his journey of going to the wet markets and learning about Peranakan cuisine from his grandmother. So I understand that you are part Thai. Um, so can you yes. tell me more about your ancestry? So my great-grandfather on my father's side is from Southern Thailand, Trang. Yeah, so and my paternal grandmother is also Pranakan, but she's a mix of Hokkien and Hakka Pranakan. Yeah, mm-hmm. and for my mom, she's Hokkien Pranakan. So my grandfather was born in Singapore also, so we're all very Singaporean already. So I often get the question, so can you speak Thai? Then I'll tell them, no, the only Thai thing about me is my name. Mm. So what really sparked this journey of going back to your roots and using Instagram to share about Paranakan culture with everyone? I think it would be when I was in primary one or two. And I was hearing my grandmother say, oh, uh, we are Paranakan, we are Baba, and I would ask her, eh, what, what, what's, what, what do these words mean? And that was how I started finding out more about the Pranakan culture. So I asked my parents about the Pranakan culture and all, but they weren't too sure about like how to go about doing that. So we actually made a trip to, to the Pranakan Museum. Yeah, so when we went there and we saw, eh, we, there were a lot of familiar items. And my mom also pointed out that, Oh, she used to have this, she used to have that. So that was where I found out that we were Pranakan and more sort of in a way more conscious of the Pranakan identity that we had. Mm. So why use Instagram as a tool? Because I actually started this account in 2015 and it was because somehow I got to know a few friends who were part Pranakan but they really didn't know anything about the Pranakan culture because I was actually quite interested in knowing how other families practice the the Pranakan traditions and their daily life. So I asked them about their family's practices, but none of them were able to tell me about about what they do at home or what food, what uh, traditional food they eat at home. So that's why I thought, hey, then why not? Since I can share and I know a bit more than them, Not I don't know everything, but I know a bit more than them. So I thought, why not I just start sharing about the Pranakan culture on Instagram since most of my friends use Instagram. Hmm. There are, I, I've seen some pages on Facebook, but I think Facebook is for older people. <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> that's why I started using Instagram. Anyway, it was quite convenient because I have my own personal account on Instagram, so I just use it. I enjoy sharing about the prayers and the ceremonies that we hold at home because uh, these, most of these observances are not carried out by many other families already. Or even if they are still observed, they are much 
more simple and sometimes they just celebrate it and observe the festivals at the temple. So you rarely see such prayers at home. Although the setup that I do at home is not as elaborate as those in Malacca or Penang. So I still observe because that is what I learned from my grandmother. So all the things that I share about like uh, mid-autumn prayers to the moon or Chinese New Year prayers, ancestral worship, all these were all taught by my grandmother. So I just, I like to share about them because I think it's quite interesting to see how the Pranakans arrange things and the selection of dishes that we prepare for ancestral worship, which you don't really see people sharing about this on other platforms. I mean, it's not very common. There are people who share, but they don't really explain much. So what I do is that I try to explain the rationale and the significance behind all, all the things that we do. So in this journey of learning about Paranakan cooking and all the rituals, were there any difficulties or challenges that you faced? I started learning how to cook when I was 15. So the first dish that I cooked was guacalua already because my mom liked to eat it and we, we just came back from a trip to Malacca and usually we just try out some Pranakan restaurants. La. Then the food was not very good. So my mom was complaining that uh, maybe we should learn how to cook the guacalua. So I learned from my grandmother how to cook the guacalua that year. And other, after learning the guacalua, I learn to cook other dishes like pongte, uh, tauilada, tempura, and chap chai, all those Pranakan food. So it was quite challenging initially because we commonly see that in recipe books, there are exact measurements. But when I was learning to cook, there were no measurements at all. My grandmother would just, uh, like this, uh, uh, you put how much, how much, how much? We just really just agak how much to put in. So it was really based on experience and you judge whether to add more of a certain ingredient or or add less or control the fire. And it was based on experience. You have to look at the texture, the color, and even the smell. So it really, I feel that I learned through experience. And even though I learned from my grandmother, there were many, many other dishes that I never got to really learn with her because she stopped cooking those dishes, but she shared with me the recipes. So the recipes, again, they have no exact measurements. So I was just given a list of the ingredients for each dish and she would just tell me the, the steps and the certain things we need to look out for. And I just started cooking at home. I just gave it a try, just really just go for it. And somehow, I think I was quite lucky because most of the dishes, I got them within the first try, so they were quite okay. So I just followed followed those so-called recipes every time I cook. Actually, you yeah. know, like I've seen some of your recipes and the dishes that you have shared with me, and it's all, you know, pretty approachable. You know, I think in my mind, right, like when I first learned about Paranakan cooking, it's like, wow, so complex. You know, like after watching the little Nonya, right, it's like, wow, very meticulous, very delicate. But actually, I realized that Paranakan, Paranakan home cooking 
I mean, for the everyday cook, is so different from what yes. the TV represented to be. So, do you feel the same? Yes, because for for example, you go to a restaurant, you would usually order like bakalau, uh, ngoh hiang, um, chap chai, uh, team. But these are the more well-known dishes which are prepared for celebrations or more significant occasions. So there are the daily dishes like it could be a simple omelette with uh, wild sireh leaves or tauyulada which is uh, dark soy sauce and pepper chicken. It's, it's a bit like a stir-fry and soups. There are many other soups like it could be cabbage soup or meatball soup. So the daily dishes are quite simple or it could be a dish of maybe uh, fried fish with chili. So those were the, the everyday meals that we have. And usually my grandmother would prepare um, a spicy dish, a non-spicy dish, a dish of vegetable and soup. So everybody would have something to eat because when we were young, we didn't take chili very well. So she would always make sure that there was a dish for the children to eat. So it would probably be like something like pongte or taulada or tempra or maybe chicken stew. Yeah, and for the spicy dishes, she would sometimes have a sambal udang or um, fried kangkong with chili mm. or maybe curry chicken or garang asam. And vegetables were quite versatile. She just went to the market and she see, oh, she just used what she could get. Mm. Mm. Yeah, for me, it's like when I was watching The Little Nonia, I felt that it was a bit of like fetishizing um, Nonia women, right? It's like the moment you're Paranakan, then you're like this magical, mystical cook who can whip up amazing things. But actually, when I was invited to a Bibik's home and I ate food that she cooked, it was just like, like, you know, just sitting at a grandmother's table, enjoying home-cooked food. And I realized that, you know, it, it can be very humble as well. So for me, there was a bit of disconnect in terms of what I perceived it to be and what it really was in, in the households. Um, do you feel that there is a certain, like, fetishization of Peranakan culture or Nonya cooking by the media? Yes, because they tend to portray Peranakan cooking as very challenging, very tedious. So it can be tedious, but I think it's not so bad as long as you get the hang of it. So initially when I was when I started cooking, it was quite quite a headache because I had to I was not familiar with the ingredients and I need to find the right ingredients. So I really had to just go out and see what I could get because I don't live with my grandmother. So I have to really just go marketing myself and see what I can get and just try out the different recipes, the recipes with no measurements. Yeah. Yeah, so I just tried and thankfully they most of them came out well. Yeah, you know you talked about finding the right ingredients, right? What are some of these ingredients? For example, because I really had no idea about making rompa and all that, so... My grandmother would just tell me, okay, uh, you need to buy lengkuas, which is blue ginger. So I would just go to the wet market and then I look at the auntie and I say, uh, auntie, uh, where are my lengkuas? Then she would just show me this root 
ginger that I had never seen before. So from there, I learned, oh, this is lengkuas. So slowly, slowly, I got I got to know more and more herbs. And I think uh, when, I was make, when, I, when I made nasi ulam once, the, I, I, I went to the market at Bedok North, Block 85, and there's this shop called Bibik Spices. The, the lady there was really very helpful because, and from what I was choosing, she could tell that I was going to make nasi ulam. So she just asked me, oh, uh, are you making nasi ulam? And I said, yes, and I actually have no idea what I want to put in. So she advised me, and from what I vaguely remember my grand-aunties and grandmother telling me, so I just for I just used her advice too, and it turned out not bad. <laughs> wow. You know, it's so cute that you, you go to the market and, like, the auntie actually treats you seriously, you know. When I first started going to the wet markets, everyone was like, Hey, Xiaomei, are you buying things for your mom or for your grandma? It's never like, oh, what are you cooking today? You know what I mean? Yeah. Initially, there, there, there were some, some uncles and aunties, they said, oh, your mom is so lucky to have you because you're helping her do the marketing. Then I was actually thinking, no, uncle, I'm cooking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, a lot of young people feel that wet markets are a very intimidating place. What was your own experience like? Some of the uncles and aunties are, they, they are nice, but they can get quite angsty sometimes when there are too many people. So I just hang around there, wait out a bit and see, oh, less people already. Then I approach the the uncles and aunties uh, and most of the time, they are not bad. They will advise you like, oh, this one, uh, today not very fresh. Uh. Don't buy, uh, don't buy. Oh, okay, then I just find other ingredients and think of other dishes to cook. Mm. And uh, um, would you initiate conversations with them or you'll wait for them to come and talk to you? Usually, I'll approach them and I'll tell them, uh, Auntie, I want to buy uh, chili today. Then usually they just pass you the basket and then you just choose whatever you want. So, but sometimes when I look at the all the vegetables on display, right, I can't see what I want. So I just approach them and say, oh, I want to find uh, maybe like pumpkin or something. Then they'll actually chop it for you. I didn't know because most of the time I go to NTUC or Giant or Xing Xiong, right? And everything is packed, pre-packed already. So you just like get it, get the whole packet. And uh, it was quite nice that the uncles and aunties actually cut for you because I didn't know they do that for you. Yeah. So mm. when, you, when you first started telling your friends that you are learning how to cook, uh, what did your friends say? They were excited about it. <laughs> they were excited about it. They say. Oh, we can cook for us next time. We can cook and bring, bring for us to try. And I never really got down to doing that because it was really quite troublesome to bring food to school. But I did cook for my uh, two of my teachers when after my O-levels, I cooked for them and I actually brought it to school. I cooked uh, ikan pari masak kualada, which is stingray in uh, yellow. It's like a fish curry. And... Uh, Sate babi, which is uh, pork cooked in in a spice paste and coconut milk. Yeah, actually that yeah. dish, right, is one of like the new discoveries for me because, you know, in the past when 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 a Paranaka would tell me, oh, you know, just make you know pork babi satay or something, I would think that it's you know the typical 
satay that, that we eat, right? And then I realized yeah. that, oh, actually, it's more like a like a more reduced version of a curry almost. And I, I, I just found that really fascinating. Yes, because even for... Uh, I never understood why it was called uh, sambal satay or satay babi because we usually associate those with the... Uh, those on bamboo skewers that we get at hawker centers. And all the Pranakan dishes, right, some of their names were quite weird because we never saw them outside. And they were just, you know, they just appeared at dinner table and my grandmother would say, oh, today I cook tempura. You know, like tempura. So I used to think that tempura was like tempura. So I was like, oh, tempura. Then I went into the kitchen and I said, eh, where's the, where's the tempura? There's no tempura. Then she says, tempura, tempura. Then she'll be like, no, it's tempura. So after I rest, oh, so tempura is this dish. Because usually my mom would scoop the food for us. So we actually don't know what what was what were the names of the dishes. So we just really just ate. And later on, only when we started taking our own food, we go into the kitchen. Then we asked, oh, what's for dinner today? Then I started to realize that the names of the dishes were quite special. And in fact, the names of some dishes reflect the fusion in Pranakan cuisine. Like as I mentioned, there was uh, Tauyu Lada. So the word Tauyu means the dark soy sauce and Lada means pepper in Malay. And you would have like Tempra, which is a... I don't know what language is that. Maybe a new, a new word. And there was also uh, Babi Chin. Babi chin is a, uh, the word babi means pork and chin is, it means uh, Close. family closeness. So this dish is, it's quite Chinese because it has pork and bamboo shoots and it's cooked in Taochiu but it's different from Pongte because uh, it has other spices in it. So... These are the few dishes that I can think of which are so-called fusion, just through their name. Yeah, and you were also talking about Nonya Mi, right? Yes, yes, yes. So, I, last time when my grandmother used to cook it, before I started learning how to cook that, she would cook this noodle and I would look at it. I, was, I, I thought that it was Hokkien Mi, but it was just her version. But later on, I realized that, oh, it's actually Nonya Mi and... There's a story behind it because it's also called uh, Mi Tong Che or Mi Tong Cheng, which, uh, which is related to funerals because they serve this on the last day of the, of the wake and it represents longevity. So uh, it's quite interesting to know that this dish is actually related to death. Yeah, so in that sense, you know, a lot of your your ingredients that you use in your cuisine um, is inspired by Chinese cooking. So I was wondering if the Paranakans view themselves as, you know, like a subset of the wider Chinese community or is it, or do you guys consider yourself to be a completely different group altogether? Mm, from what I hear from my grandfather, right, the early Paranakans, they sort of, um, saw themselves as um, they were not part of the Chinese community. They were, in fact, not on very good terms with the new Chinese that came uh, in the 19, 19 something. Yeah. So, because uh, my grandfather said that 
his father, they, they, they were Pranakan and they couldn't speak Hokkien at all, although they were Hokkien Pranakans. So uh, I asked him why and he told me that it was because the Pranakans, they would mix among themselves and the Chinese would be together. So actually, there wasn't much of a, like intermingling between the two communities. So that's why most of the older Pranakans, they either couldn't speak Hokkien or their Hokkien sounded very weird. <laughs> so for for my great grandfather he married a Hokkien from Malacca. So it was after his marriage that he started learning Hokkien. Mm. And so and my grandfather told me that the the Chinese would often uh make fun of the Pranakan women because the Pranakan women wore the sarong kebaya and they were they would wear the sarong. So uh, there was this saying that uh, Nyonya Lang Cheng Sarong Bo Cheng Lai Ko. What does that mean? Which means that the Nyonya women, they wear sarong and they don't wear any underwear. <laughs> 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 yeah, so it was it was a bit funny. And you know, the they have hairpins for their, their yeah. hair bun. And because the somehow these hairpins had very big heads, so uh, the Chinese goldsmith would call them uh, coffin nails because they they resemble the coffin nails that uh that were used in the funeral rites uh when nailing the big Chinese coffins. Mm. So it was this type of little little mockings, <laughs> mockings. I don't know what to call it. They were like making fun of the Nyonyas. and in fact, even among among the Pranakans, they would have uh certain terms to refer to the Chinese like um I'm not sure where this uh this term originates from but they will always call the the Chinese like Chinaga or um I've heard I've heard a grand auntie say Waga which I believe it refers to the same thing. Oh and there was once right uh I happened to be squatting in the kitchen and my grandmother said uh why you uh quote there like those China Joko is uh, to squat. Mm. So she said, uh, only the Chinese people squat and eat. So <laughs> I was like, that doesn't make sense, but okay. It's quite funny. It's, it's, it's quite funny how they they stick so much to the Chinese values and uh, rituals, but they don't exactly, most of them actually don't understand why they carry out these rituals. And some of them even assign the wrong names for certain deities and or maybe mispronounce the name so it's quite funny to hear them mispronounce the names uh one very distinctive trait of a pranakan household is that it is ruled by the females not the males it's very matriarchal in structure so can you tell me more about that the women it, their, their role in the pranakan culture and everything right they're actually very important because they are the main carriers and so-called protectors i would say of the traditions and the heritage because if not for my grandmother and my mother, right, I I wouldn't actually know so much about the Pranakan culture. And uh I've seen families where the father is Pranakan but the wife is uh, the mother is uh is a Chinese and when you look at the children right you can't it's very hard to identify the children as Pranakan from the way they behave and the way they talk. Whereas uh for families that have a Pranakan mother and a let's say Chinese father, right? The children come out more 
they tend to have a more Pranakan upbringing, which um, my late grandfather, he, he really praised the Pranakan upbringing because uh, there were many things that we couldn't do and we had to behave ourselves. Like uh, we have to be very respectful of our elders and at dinner, dinner time, you have to address your elders to eat. You cannot, uh, prop, you cannot prop your hand when you're eating. You cannot shake your leg because all these were the things that my grandmother would, would make sure we, we don't do. And um, women were actually running the household. So because they were, they were at home most of the time, so they were in charge of doing all the housework, cooking, preparing for prayers in the olden days. And the men were usually out of the house doing their work. So, um, and at home, usually the women were involved in everything. So from cooking, washing, uh, preparing certain items for uh, events and all that. So in fact, the men, there was nothing much for the men to say because they just made the money and they give to the women and the women would just run the house. In the past, most of the men, right, they rarely outlived their wives. Mm. So ultimately, and many of them died of gout. It was quite common. So uh, eventually the women, their wives, became like the matriarch, the head of the household. But although they became the head of the household, there were certain uh, at rituals, right? They would still regard their son as the head of the household. Like um, during Chinese New Year, right? Uh, some families practice this at midnight. Some families practice this before sunrise. So it's the ritual where they call Sambot Taon. They make prayers and they open the main door to welcome the new year. Yeah, so uh, there are families with uh, the grandmother still alive, but she would get her son to do it because they feel that it's more appropriate for a man to do it. Mm. Yeah, actually, you know, when you were talking, there's this question that I that popped up in my mind and it's something that I've been thinking about. And that is, you know, like Singaporeans, we always say, oh, what is Peranakan? Peranakan is when a Malay woman is married to a Chinese man, right? That's how you get Peranakans. But then, you know, now, now with... Um, intermarrying say you know a Peranakan guy like, like what you mentioned a Peranakan man marrying a Chinese woman um, would their offspring be considered Peranakan and would you know if any like a, an ordinary Chinese person were to marry a Malay person in this day and age would their, would their offspring be considered Peranakan? I think that um, being Peranakan is not only about uh, your your genes but also it's, it's a lifestyle it's like your heritage so if today a Chinese man marries a Malay lady right um, I don't think that descendants would be you could maybe consider them as like the early Pranakans but you would have to consider that maybe the their offspring would be Muslim because the early early um, late, um, mothers of the Pranakan children, they were not Muslim. That's why you have uh, most of the Chinese Pranakans that are that practice the old way of worship. They uh, they pray to the Chinese deities and they pray at the Kramats, they pray to Hindu deities. In fact they just pray to everything for their family. And 
um, for the Pranakan father and uh, maybe a Chinese mother, their children would be considered Pranakan, but ultimately, I think what matters is their upbringing and the values and whether they practice the customs or not. So, you know, previously I had another young guest come on the podcast and her name is Shiny Pua. So I think she's 23 years old this year and she's like a young kuih maker who is upholding her Teochew traditions. And when I asked her what your friends feel about, you know, this kind of kuih, she told me that she did, she did say that they feel that this is boomer food. How do you feel we can get young people interested in heritage and traditions? I think it's we could try to make it more appealing to them because they tend to associate this with like oh uh food that my grandmother or my mother would eat or cook. So I think it's about the marketing of the food. I thought I, I ever thought of like um maybe letting people try Pranakan food or like and like share about it with them, but I thought that would be quite hard because maybe out of 10 people that you gather maybe at most two or three will actually be interested or like want to find out more so it's not very meaningful if i cook or able to eat and you know they come and try but they don't get interested that's why i try to share on instagram and uh you know given the current trend towards tiktok do you think you'll ever promote peranakan culture through tiktok to me, to me, I personally I use TikTok, right? And to me, TikTok is like I want I want like fast content. Like I quickly just see like this video is like short, then I finish watching it, then I go on to the next one. So I think it's very hard for me to share like on TikTok because it's too short and I cannot have my long, long, long captions. Whereas uh, on Instagram, what I usually do is that I have the long captions and I also add on in my story also. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I think now with everyone's attention spans, right, it's really hard to, you know, grab younger people's attentions. That's why sometimes I get a bit worried when I see my caption is a bit too long. I'm (laughs) I'm very scared. It's like, wow, super worthy. Nobody read. So I try to keep it short, but I cannot miss out the details also. Yeah. So sometimes, uh, for example, the same dish, right? I could post it a few times because I share about the different stories behind the dish also. Mm. So is there something that you're working towards? Or, you know, what is your vision for what your platform could do? Or what, what you hope to see? I just wish to continue sharing about the Pranakan culture and, in fact, show and share about the rituals that people don't get to see in museums because when I went to the Pranakan Museum, right, I when I first went there and subsequently in secondary school, I went back there again and they had the, the altars all set up but there was just no feel, you know, like because it was just empty because it's not sustainable to keep putting food there and uh, the exhibits didn't really reflect the the offerings that they prepare and all the stuff. So I thought maybe through my sharings, I I could share with people like what we prepare. I mean, because in fact, cook all the, all these uh, recipes and uh 
offerings for prayers, right? They actually differ from family to family. And among sisters, even the recipes also differ for the same dish. So that's why that's why um some of, some of my elders they actually told me, hey, you should open a Pranakan restaurant next time. But I personally feel that it's a challenge because uh for example, there's this Pranakan restaurant that everybody says is very nice, but when we go and eat it, right, we find that it's not as nice as everybody claims it to be. So uh, I was thinking, why, why does this happen? It's because of expectations. Because we are so used to the way that a certain dish is being prepared. And when we go and try other ways that the dish is being prepared in, we are unable to accept that taste and we just find it not nice. So to us, that cooking style doesn't appeal to us, you know. Like the flavor and the taste of it. Mm. Yeah. That's what I've heard as well. I heard that a lot of Paranakans don't don't eat out because they are so critical of other people's food. Yes. That's why they always say the food from their grandmother and the mother is the best and nobody can beat it. And in fact during Chinese New Year gatherings, right, there when some grand aunties used to cook their home cooked dishes for Chinese New Year, uh my grandmother would go there and then she would taste and then she would secretly tell my mom, like, not nice. <laughs> like, not nice, you know. So, then she would, she, would, she would, and it was during this time when she, when she said the dish was not nice, and she would tell my mom how to prepare the fish maw properly, because she mm-hmm. said that relative, the, her fish maw had, like, some fishy smell. She didn't clean it properly. So, she, she told my mom, and I was just listening there. So, I also learned from that. Yeah, but actually, you know, when I look at some of the dishes that Peranakans are cooking, like I saw your angkukui is so dainty and so nice, and like your apom balik, and then I follow Lloyd Matthew Tan also. Um, I think his Instagram is Porot Ruma, right? Like, wow, his his kuih, all very dainty and all very meticulous, and it's the kind of thing that you really can't find outside. Because it's very hard to to produce this type of food in huge quantities. Like, if you're talking about, like, home, home, homely dishes, I think it's quite hard to prepare so much, like, in restaurants or, yeah. yeah. That's so true. Like, you know, when I was making pineapple tarts here in Melbourne, you know, I really made everything from scratch, from the jam to the tart, and then to, like, crimp, not crimping, like, I just did the, the one with the clove on top. And like, my boss was like, oh, why didn't you give me any? You know, I'm like, what? It's very precious, you know? It's like so much. Duration it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, I, I only made like maybe 20 to 30 in one batch. And it's like, wow, unthinkable to sell it or give it away because it's so much effort. It's a lot of work. Mm, exactly. Yeah, so anyway, I, I love what you're doing and I really hope that you continue doing it because you're such a shining example of a young person who is like really forging on and promoting our culture and I was so thrilled to find your work and you know and connect with you through Instagram. So thank you. Thank you. That wraps up another episode of the Singapore Noodles podcast. You have been listening to Chrisada Virabak, who is the founder of All Things Peranakan on Instagram. If you'd like to find out more about the rituals that Chrisada was talking about, you can check out Seasonings Magazine's Hungry Ghost Festival edition, where Chrisada shares about how his family prepares the ancestral feast every seventh month. 
The magazine is available for purchase on seasoningsmag.com and at Kinokaniya. And we also do offer digital copies and ship worldwide for those of you who live overseas. Once again, thank you for listening to the podcast and I'll catch you all next week.